Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha was among the first to sound the alarm about Flint's water issues and the threat to public health that was posed by lead in the water. But how did Dr. Mona come to even be concerned about Flint water? The answer is Elen Batanzo, a lifelong friend of Dr. Mona's and a water quality expert who sensed from a memo that the water disaster was about to unfold. She was instrumental in uncovering Flint's water crisis. Joining us now to talk about Dr. Mona's book, What the Eyes Don't See, which is the subject of our WDET book club, as well as the Flint water crisis and Michigan's new lead copper rule, is Elin Batanzo. Elin, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. So let's start with this memo that you saw uh, and what you concluded uh, based on that memo and what sort of motivated you, I guess, to, to go to Dr. Mona and say something doesn't add up here. Yeah, so I was living in Michigan and following the news about Flint water because I'd seen headlines that there were some uh, Safe Drinking Water Act violations going on there. And uh, in one of the articles that I saw, I think Kurt Guyette had been reporting and published a memo from a former colleague of mine, Miguel Del Toro, uh, from the EPA uh, Chicago Region 5 office. And in that memo, he had said that he knew that Flint was not using corrosion control, that they have many lead service lines in the city of Flint. And he was very concerned, based on sampling that he had done there, that there were very high lead levels in the water there. And uh, you said, for instance, and it's quoted in the book, uh, that um, uh, I worked with Miguel. I know Miguel. I trust him. And he wouldn't write this memo if there wasn't a serious problem. Uh, Dr. Mona says the urgency on Elon's face was unmistakable. Yes. Yeah. Uh, t- talk about how you felt when uh, you were talking to Dr. Mona about these things, that uh, uh, you had experience with this issue uh, in Washington, D.C. before. Mm-hmm. This was kind of an echo of something that you saw that was pretty harrowing. Right. Yeah. So I lived in Washington, D.C. during the D.C. lead crisis, and I worked for EPA during that time. So there had been, uh, they made a water treatment change there, and there had been about three years of high lead in the water, and and that had been covered up, you know, very much like the Flint water crisis, and that was reported in the media there. And what I had learned from my experience uh, in Washington, D.C., that nobody is really going to pay attention to the fact that there was lead in the water until there was some evidence that people were being harmed by it, even if even though they were violating a drinking water regulation. And so when I saw Miguel's memo about Flint, I had been, I, I saw that the same thing was happening there, and I was trying to figure out what in the world could I do to uh, you know break this open because there was definitely harm. There. So when uh, Mona invo- invited me over for dinner one night and started talking about her commute to Flint, all the pieces fell together in my mind, and I realized that she had the ability to do this. Uh, and at the EPA, um, uh, you tried to ele- you tried to address these elevated levels uh, in Washington when that crisis was unfolded, mm-hmm. and the EPA wasn't terribly responsive to your to your concerns. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So after the story broke in the Washington Post about high lead in the water, my boss came to me the next workday and said, 
Elin, can you find evidence that children have ever been poisoned by lead in the drinking water? Because all we ever hear about is being poisoned from lead paint. And so what I've learned uh, in my research at that time and since then is that generally when, when there is a child that is found to be lead poisoned, if there is an investigation at that home, once they find one source of lead exposure, they don't continue to uh, investigate any further. So if there's lead paint in the home, they say that's a lead paint exposure. That's the problem. We're going to remediate the paint. They don't go and see, is there an additional contribution from the water? And so for that reason, and because of the way we sample the water and the way we sample children, it is very hard to detect when a elevated lead exposure is due only to the water. So it was really hard to bring evidence uh, to my boss at that time that it was the drinking water that really can uh, poison children. But what we found uh, since then, um, actually in, in 2004, the Centers for Disease Control had put out a study that said that no children in D.C. were harmed by the D.C. lead crisis, but then put out a correction, not until 2010, six years later, saying that we actually excluded records from that analysis. And when we include them, we find that there is actually a evidence that the children living in homes with lead service lines have uh, elevated blood lead levels uh, at a much higher rate than the children who don't. So um, we had evidence there, but six years too late to do anything about it. We haven't had any of the interventions in Washington, D.C. that we've, uh, Mona's been able to accomplish in Flint. Yeah. And, and in that way, uh, it must feel to you as though what happened in Flint and the response to it, uh, partially at least thanks to, to things that you said and did, are kind of a makeup for what happened in Washington. I mean, we talked with Mark Edwards uh, recently about that Washington crisis, he said the same thing, that that things there did not get fixed uh, the way that they should have, uh, and they certainly haven't been fixed or hadn't been fixed in the way that things happen in Flint. It, it strikes me that, that one of the reasons that, uh, that Flint happened differently was because of what you said. Right, because we caught that there were health effects right in the middle of it, and I think it has really changed our conversation nationwide about lead and drinking water because we've had many lead crises, uh, the D.C. lead crisis, the Flint water crisis. They're not the only ones. We have lead and drinking water. We've had uh, lead action level exceedances all over the country. There's Portland, Denver, Pittsburgh, Newark. These are just a few. Um, we've got more here going on in Michigan as well. But it really changed the conversation to have evidence of harm in the middle of that crisis. And I think that's why we've been talking about lead and drinking water a lot more, and especially here in Michigan. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Elin Batonzo. She is a former EPA worker and a longtime friend of Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha. And in fact, she is the person who first brought to Dr. Mona's attention the idea that something was really wrong in the water in Flint following the switch from the Detroit water uh, system to the Flint River uh, while the city was under emergency management. We're talking about uh, Dr. Mona's book, What the Eyes Don't See, which is the subject of our WDET book club this summer. Uh, we're also talking about the Flint water crisis, and in a little bit we're going to talk about the new lead and copper rules uh, that try to prevent something like Flint from happening again. If you want to join the conversation, 
give us a call. Uh, tell us what you think about uh, the response to the Flint water crisis, the things that were done once we realized that there was lead in the water uh, and that everybody in Flint was being exposed to it. Do you think we did the right things? Do you think we acted fast enough? And now in 2019, do you think we've done all the things that need to be done to make sure that uh, there is access to clean water for people in Flint, as well as other cities around the state and the nation. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we will work you into conversation. Uh, Elin, I'm going to put that question to you before we get to phones. Uh, talk about the things that we've done uh, that that um, that have mattered and maybe the things that are left undone still uh, in response to the Flint water crisis. Well, from a drinking water perspective, I think the big uh, thing that's happening in Flint is that they are replacing the lead service lines. And uh, according to reports out from the city of Flint, they're expecting either this month or this summer to finish replacing all of the lead service lines where um, that are actively serving homes with active water accounts. And that would probably be the fastest lead service line replacement program we've had in this country. And so that that is a huge, huge deal. Um, they've been replacing full lead service lines all the way from the water main all the way to the home. Uh, in most water utilities, past practice has always been to do a partial lead service line replacement you know, just to the curb, and there's a bunch of health concerns related to that practice. So the fact that they're doing this and distributing filters uh, in Flint is um, just it's, – it's a huge deal. Um, so they're – that's from the drinking water perspective. They've switched back to the Detroit water, mm -hmm. increased their corrosion treatment there. Flint is still a system that is very oversized for the population there. So we still have water quality concerns, and they have to manage their distribution system very carefully to make sure that um, the water is moving, that they have maintain water quality for the entire system. And, and that's a real challenge when that system was developed for a population of over 200,000. They have less, less than 100,000 there right now. Uh, talk about that that idea of big systems built for many more people than they serve now and and how that introduces danger into the into the drinking water. Yeah, so you want the water in your water system to uh, move quickly to the customer because the 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 shortest time between treatment and consuming it is, you know, you have the best water quality because my, microbes can enter the distribution system. They can grow and they're already in there. Um, you can have disinfection byproducts that form. The longer the water is just stagnant in your pipes and your household plumbing, you can have lead and copper and other metals leaching into the drinking water. So, like, the key to water quality is just get it to your mouth as fast as possible. <laughs> and um, so when you've got these oversized systems, it just stays in these large diameter water mains for a long time. And so from that perspective, when when those systems are a little leaky, it actually helps move the water along, even though we don't want to waste water and that's expensive. Um, you just want to get that water to the user as fast as possible. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. And also... Uh, in addition to answering your questions now on the air, Elon will answer your questions on the WDET Book Club Facebook group uh, today as well. So you can uh, go check that out 
in addition to listening to the show today. Uh, let's start with Dan in Warren. Dan, what's on your mind? Uh, the name is Ben. Oh, Ben, I'm sorry. It said Dan No here. problem. Go ahead. I, I was born in Memphis, raised in Flint, married for 12 years in Pontiac, currently living in Warren. Common denomination between all those cities is urban communities where businesses have been dumping in the water for decades over a hundred years are we behind the eight ball on cleaning up the water hmm. and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Hmm. Uh, ben, I really appreciate the, the, the call and the comments. Um, Elon, he, he raises an interesting point and he, he's talking about sources of mm-hmm. drinking water and the problems that we have with pollution there. Your work has focused more on, I think, the systems that take that water and and pump it to our, our our taps in our houses, but we have problems on both ends, right? right. I mean, it, it, there is a problem with uh, with source as well as system. Right, and the the cleaner we keep the source, the easier it is to treat and deliver reliable drinking water to people. Um, one thing about drinking water systems. Uh, they've been, but I think before the Flint water crisis, a lot of people have really considered the drinking water systems like completely separate from the environmental systems and that you can, you can treat any source water. You can take the dirtiest water and if you put enough money and treatment into it, you can make it, you know, perfect drinking water. And so, uh, where communities have money for that, that's not a problem, (laughs) but where communities don't have money for that, then of course the drinking water is very much at risk. But um, our drinking water is part of our environmental, it's part of the water cycle. So we need to consider that all together. Yeah. Yeah. Again, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Tom in northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to the program. Yeah, you know, what? to to me is this. This is what happens when you put money before people. I mean, I know they did this to save money, but as long as Detroit was pumping water up to Flint, you heard nothing about, you know, any ill effects that these people were suffering because of, you know, the exposure to lead. And um, I just think that, um, you know, when it comes down to people, always put people first. And, you know, and even before, before they flipped the switch to go from Detroit to the Flint River water, didn't anybody take a tube and dip it in the water and, and check that stuff for, you know, the uh, corrosive, corrosiveness of that water because, you know, once it's in the pipes, I mean, you know, if it's that bad, and I mean, the young lady, she can correct me if I'm wrong, and I am nowhere near a scientist, okay? Um, it's going to, you know, you know, eat that lining up that's in that pipe. Mm. Tom, I, I appreciate uh, the call and the thoughts. Elon, I, I'll give you a chance to respond. Well, all, all the water quality experts knew that there would be a problem switching the source water. I mean, that's that was no surprise to anybody who knows their water chemistry. Um, but your, also your observation that before the Flint water crisis, uh, nobody was having issues with lead exposure. That's, um, we didn't know about it. We weren't able to measure it. And that's because we have lead service lines in many of our older homes. We estimate uh, about 460,000 lead service lines in the state of Michigan. And We've been drinking water out of it for the last 100 years or since since they've been installed. And so that's just baseline exposure. And so in Flint, when they switched 
the source water and the treatment, and it became more corrosive, and then there was this change. You could measure that change in population-wide exposure. But otherwise, we have lead pipes, and it's just it ends up being measured as part of our baseline exposure. And because of weaknesses in the lead and copper rule, we haven't been measuring the lead contribution from water, and so it's been very hard to tease out what people are exposed to their, from their drinking water on a regular basis. Mm, yeah. Now, Tom, again, thanks for the call. And the thoughts, let's go to Bernadette in Redford. Good morning, Stephen. My question concerns bottled water. I have noticed that people have been uh, running to the store in droves and stocking up on cases of bottled water. How clean is it? And Hmm. does any of the plastic bottles that uh, contain the water leach plastic into the water that people are drinking because they think it's safer? (laughs) That's a great question, uh, Bernadette. Thanks for the call. Go ahead, Elaine. Yeah, a lot of times we do reach for bottled water when we're looking for an alternative to tap water and we're not sure about the safety of our tap water. And so... My, my feelings, well, the bottled water is regulated differently than our tap water. It's a completely different um, monitoring system. So our tap water is measured more frequently and has some stricter standards. The bottled water standard for lead is five parts per billion. Um, <clears throat> but kind of my, my opinion about bottled water is pretty much the only contaminant that you know is going to be more reliable and more safe in a bottle is lead because the water, when they're bottling the water, it, the water doesn't stand in contact with lead pipes for prolonged periods. So they are getting it before it gets right. To that it's stage. not it's not ever going to sit in the lead pipe. So you don't have to worry about that water leaching lead before it gets in the bottle. But you do have to worry about everything else. <laughs> so you do have to worry about that plastic. Where where has that case of bottled water been? Has it been sitting in the sun? Is that plastic leaching into your water? Um there's you know, a lot of groundwater sources where the bottled water requires no treatment at all. So that aquifer could be contaminated with whatever. And since they're not doing the same uh, spectrum of sampling that you would do for your tap water, that bottled water just wouldn't be as reliable. So kind of for me, if I, if I need bottled water like for an immediate need or if I, was ha- if I knew I was very concerned about lead in my water in my home, I would actually choose to use bottled water that comes from a municipal source because it had to meet all of the uh, Safe Drinking Water Act regulations plus the bottled water standard. And so that's the way I would handle it. But I, I think it's pretty much a short-term solution and not a long-term solution. Mm. Uh, before we break, uh, I, I want to get you to talk about the work that you're doing now. Uh, you founded a company called Safe Water uh, Engineering, but but I also want you to address this. Um, uh, I guess the serendipity, I guess, of of the way in which this unfolded because you knew Dr. Mona. You you two have been friends, I think, since high school. Yes. You have said, um, and that made it easy, I guess, for you to get. Uh, the information to her and for her to act on it. Mm-hmm. But that's not really the way this is supposed to work. Right. And and if not That concerns for, me very much. Right. If not for that friendship. Right. I really wonder what uh what what might have happened in Flint that would have been worse than what actually uh that, that actually happened. What was the failure um that that left it to, you know, this this wonderful friendship uh to to uncover this massive public health problem. Well, I think there there are multiple failures along the way and also kind of just many lucky coincidences that um, 
had me in the right place in the right time to be able to tell Mona about what was happening. But so some of those failures are the federal lead and copper rule is just completely inadequate for uh, making sure drinking water is safe from lead. And um, the when they well, they should have never made that switch in Flint in the first place. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they did have evidence of lead in the water, that's the time to address it. We don't. We should never, ever be waiting to measure lead in children to address it because it's a lead is a potent, irreversible neurotoxin with multi-generational impacts. And so once you have waited to measure it in the children, it's far too late. So we need to develop a culture of when there's lead in the water, we address the lead in the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and tell us about uh, Safe Water Engineering, this company that you have founded. So I've been, I, I, I had the opportunity to start my own company uh, because so many people were uh, asking me <laughs> to help them uh, with their <laughs> drinking water issues and uh, help them understand about lead in the drinking water. So I have been uh, doing some consulting for water utilities. I've been doing some consulting with Detroit I've been working with some uh, environmental nonprofits who have been not involved in drinking water conversations in the past, and they've realized we need to get up to speed very quickly. So that's been very rewarding to work with them and help them understand and engage better in our drinking water issues. So those are the types of work I'm doing. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Elin Batonzo. We're going to talk about the new lead and copper rules, as well as water issues around the state, including this recent issue in Highland Park. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. My guest right now is Elin Batonzo. She is a former EPA worker who first alerted Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha to the idea that there was a poisoning happening in Flint's water supply. She sounded the alarm for the person who went on to first really sound the alarm for the rest of us about what was happening in Flint and play a pivotal role uh, in making sure that we addressed that problem the way it should have been. Uh, We're talking about the Flint water crisis. We're talking about Dr. Mona's book, What the Eyes Don't See, which is the subject of our WD E.T. Book Club this summer. And now we want to turn to talk about the new lead and copper rules, uh, which are also kind of an outgrowth of what happened in Flint. They were one of the responses that uh, unfolded to that. If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. And what questions do you have for uh, Elin Batanzo, who's one of the first people to realize there were elevated lead levels in Flint's water? How did that crisis affect your attitudes toward government? This idea of trusting that government is doing what it's supposed to do to keep us safe. Uh, The idea that when you turn on that tap in your home, the water that comes out is clean. That's something we all kind of take for granted. Did the Flint water crisis make you reconsider that 
attitude about uh, about government and the way that they keep us uh, safe with drinking water. Also, if you're from Highland Park, if you're from Highland Park, where we are seeing uh, a, a water crisis of sorts unfold, uh, that's really related to this lead and copper rule, the new rules, the new standards. Um, tell us how Flint has impacted your trust in the lead filter and the water crisis. Uh, if you're living in Highland Park, are you fearful? that the same kinds of things that happen in flight could happen in your community. As always, again, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, also remember that uh, in addition to answering your questions here on the air today, Elin will be answering your questions on the WDET Book Club Facebook group. You just go to Facebook and search for the WDET Book Club. There are lots of discussions there. Uh, she will be there today <clears throat> answering questions about that. So, uh, Elin, I want to talk about this new lead and copper rule and, uh, rule, uh, and have you explain what it is uh, and why it will make a difference in the way we deal with these issues in the future. Yes, the new Michigan lead and copper rule was, uh, became effective in June of 2018. So we've had it on the books for about a year, but right now is where when some of those uh, new requirements are coming into play. And this, I think this is probably the most protective lead and copper rule that we have in the country. Uh, the federal rule kind of establishes a baseline of what requirements are and states are allowed to make um, more uh, stringent requirements on top of that. So that's what Michigan chose to do uh, back in June of 2018. So there are uh, probably five provisions of the rule that are very important. And kind of the first one of those that that is the foundation of everything is the water utilities in Michigan have to create an inventory of all their service lines and they have to know what they're made out of. So they actually have to identify where their lead service lines are. And if you have a lead service line, they have to tell you that you have one. And I think it's kind of amazing. The federal rule does not require that. A lot of water utilities just don't have the records for what those service lines are made of. And lead service lines are solid lead pipes that carry water from the water main to a home. And so anytime water is in contact with lead, there is a, a risk of lead exposure and that those lead pipes are the largest magnitude risk of getting lead in your drinking water. So it's very important to know where they are, to know if you have one in your home. And if you have one, you should be uh, using a filter to remove lead from the water. Um, but that's not a requirement in the rule. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and so this new rule is what led to these new concerns in Highland Park yes. as they're implementing uh, this new rule and applying these new standards, they've found that uh, a certain number of homes uh, had had elevated levels uh, in the in their drinking water. Right. So, uh, so this gets to the sampling. So once you know where your lead pipes are, you have to sample in them. In the federal rule, um, you only have to sample like 50% of your samples have to come from lead service lines and 50% can come from another group of uh, homes. But now in Michigan, if you've got lead service lines, you have to take all of your samples from lead service line homes. And if there's a home with a lead service line, we're doing a new sampling protocol. Under the federal rule, we just collect the first liter of water out of a tap 
and that represents your household plumbing and the lead contribution from your household plumbing. So we've got plumbing in our faucets and fixtures and lead solder in household plumbing. So you're measuring that contribution in the first liter, and that's what water utilities have been able to use since 1991 and say, we we don't have a lead problem because look at all of our data. It's all non-detect. Well, that's because none of that water is coming from a lead service line. Hmm. So now in Michigan, um, the, the compliance sampling is you take the first liter out of the tap and the fifth liter. And that fifth liter isn't always going to capture the peak of lead in a lead service line, but it's going to be much more reliable for capturing the high lead contribution from a lead service line. And so now that we're using that, we're going to be seeing higher lead levels in the water. Yeah. So um, it's also true that these new standards are not being universally embraced by uh, by everybody. There, right. there are a number of water systems, in fact, who say these standards are, are too high and it's going to be too costly to exactly. do it this way. Tell us tell us what's going on there. There is a group of water utilities that have sued. They want to have the rule tossed out. They say that lead service line replacement is too expensive. Um, they say that they, they're they concerned about being sued about replacing lead service lines that are on private property. Uh, and they uh, you know, some of the statements in some of their filings say that they say that lead service line replacement is politically motivated and uh, there's no real health benefits from it. But the, the evidence is that lead service lines create lead in drinking water. And one of the provisions in the Michigan Lead and Copper Rule that I think is probably the most important and most public health protective is a ban on partial lead service line replacements. And so water utilities have been doing this um, Forever, they would replace a lead service line from the water main in the street to the property line and say, what's left is your problem. You can pay for it. We're just going to leave it here. But that practice, there is evidence that that can greatly increase uh, risk of lead exposure in the home because they're shaking up the pipe. They're disrupting corrosion control. They're creating a galvanic connection. So they're accelerating corrosion in that remaining lead pipe. So it's a really expensive way for water utilities to increase exposure risk in the home. And so when the water utilities are saying, we can't replace lead service lines on private property, they're saying we can't protect, we, we're, we're not going to prioritize protecting public health. We're, we want to do this the way we've been doing it. And I find that very concerning because there is such a high risk of lead exposure in those scenarios. And, and as a scientist, I, I would imagine it's frustrating to keep having these conversations where politics or money become the, the sort of overarching principle by which people are trying to make decisions when from your perspective, uh, the evidence is clear. There isn't a debate about what we should do or shouldn't do from a scientific perspective. Right. So if this conversation were starting from the standpoint of public health, what do we have to do to protect public health? And then what what do we have to do to get the money to protect public health? And so we're we need to have the conversation that way instead of starting with, well, what do we have money for and what can we afford to do? Because that's not helping anybody. Um, I would really prefer uh, right now, instead of defending the Michigan Lead and Copper Rule, I would much rather be talking about 
how we can get the money and the resources to do this because it is expensive and that is a challenge. And the water systems with the most lead service lines are low-income communities that are already struggling with water bills, but that doesn't mean they should drink lead in their water. That is not a justification for that. We need to find the resources. So we need to change that conversation and figure out how to get the money and get this done because nobody should be drinking water out of a lead pipe. Yeah, And it fits into the larger context, I think, of the infrastructure conversation that we're having here in Michigan. And we have the same struggle in in other ways, this idea that there are needs that are not debatable, uh, but the idea of getting money to get those needs met and getting the political will to get that money is kind of what stands between us and a a little more rational uh, management of these these things. Mm -hmm. Um, I I want you to talk also... um, uh, about the the um, uh, the lead and copper rule and how it how it will affect the way that we make decisions about infrastructure in the in the future. In addition to the the, the lead line uh, uh, service service line replacement, there are other things that that will change that we do because of this. Is that right? Um, well, what I would love these new requirements to do is just jumpstart renewing all of our water infrastructure because truly the the most effective way to spend our resources for lead service line replacement is to renew the water mains at the same time. We want to do all those projects and coordinate all of our infrastructure projects. If we're paving the road, that's the time to replace the water main. You know, we have all these efficiencies. And so um, if we have the funding for all of this, we really could renew our infrastructure and have much more reliable uh, water. You know, you know, all of our civic infrastructure doesn't have to be limited to just drinking water, but it requires a uh, full investment. And we can't we can't pick and choose. We can't say we're only going to do the water mains. We're only going to do the lead service lines. We're only going to separate our stormwater systems. We have to do it all together to use our money most efficiently. Yeah. Uh, there, you said there were five provisions of the lead and copper rule, and we got to three of them, I think. So uh-huh. let's talk about the other two as well. And so, uh, so the ones that I've covered first are kind of like the precursor, but I think the the big exciting one is the requirement to replace all the lead service lines in the state. Mm-hmm. And there is no uh, parallel in the federal lead and copper rule. There's, there's you. We still have most of our lead service lines, uh, even though that federal rule has been in place since 1991. But the Michigan rule requires all the lead service lines to be out in 20 years and the full service lines, not just the partials. And so that means right now we're actually on a pathway to getting them out. And if we had started in 1991, you know, we most of the country would be done with this. Yeah. But um, we, ha- we have to start sometime, and if we don't start now, you know, now is the right time to start, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, and what's the fifth provision? Uh, so there is uh, new um, public education requirements. There's a uh, statewide drinking water advisory council that's being, that is actually meeting, I think they have a meeting next week, uh, to talk about how to educate people better about lead and drinking water. So there's all these uh, public education pieces that are um, that are lacking in the federal rule. If there's a lead action level exceedance in the federal rule, the water system isn't required to tell you that it comes from lead service lines, and they they don't even have to tell you. Look for a lead service line in your house. It misses all of these re- really critical risk factors. So we've uh, filled those gaps in the Michigan rule. 
And so you'll notice that the one thing that I'm not talking about right now is probably one that ends up getting quoted the most is that the Michigan lead and copper rule lowers the lead action level. Mm -hmm. And compared to these other pieces, I see that as not nearly as important. It's a number. It's easy to talk about. We're moving from 15 parts per billion to 12 parts per billion. But really, banning partials, getting all the lead service lines out, measuring the lead contribution more accurately, though that's where this rule is so important and is going to have so many uh, public health gains for us. Yeah. Uh, would it help if the federal rules were also being tightened and and scrutiny were being applied more exactingly, I guess, from, from that level? I would love the federal lead and copper rule to uh, look a lot more like the Michigan lead and copper rule. And of course, I will say that there are you know pieces that... Um, it's, the Michigan rule isn't perfect, but it is such a huge improvement over the federal rule. Uh, right now, or I should say, not in 2005, <laughs> the EPA committed to revising the federal lead and copper rule. And uh, right now, that rule that they committed to in 2005 is being reviewed by the Office of Management and Budget. Their EPA says it's going to come out this summer. And... Um, so we don't know what's going to be in that. Uh, we don't know if it's going to strengthen that federal rule or if it's going to weaken it. Wow. Okay. Elin Batonzo, it was really great to have you here with us on Thank Detroit you. Today. And a reminder that uh, Elin will be uh, in our WDET Facebook book club uh, group today, also answering your questions about lead and copper, about the Flint water crisis uh, and water quality issues in general. Again, thanks very much for being here with us. All right, up next, there's a movie debut today at the Southfield AMC, and the producers are going to join us to discuss why Skin, which is based on a true story, is a film on white supremacy that is worth watching. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. <laughs> 